I think in my haste to get emails sent out this week while I was away at a conference, I forgot to put in the second passage. I think that was on me. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and read the second passage. If you would like to read along, it is on page 1852 of the Pew Bible. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We all remember where we were at just before 9 a.m. on this day 21 years ago. I don't have to remind any of you what this day is. It's probably already been on your mind this morning. I remember that I was late for work that morning. I don't remember why I was late, but I was supposed to be there at 8.30 and walked into the office just as the radio announced the first plane hitting the World Trade Center. That day was filled with confusion and fear. I had a one-year-old baby at home. What did this mean for her future? My dad lived and worked in Washington, D.C. Would he be safe with things hitting the Pentagon? My stepsister lived and worked in New York City. How was she going to get home that day? And when Flight 93 crashed, we all wondered, would Pittsburgh be safe? Where was that plane headed and why? At first, we didn't know who caused it, and there were fearful speculations Was this a rogue terrorist organization or a whole country attacking us? Were there more attacks coming? Would we ever be able to fly again? There was so much that we did not know that day and in the days immediately following. I worked in a retirement community at the time, and it was both fascinating and scary to sit with those who'd been through World War II as they wondered if there would be war after this, like there was after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. It's not often that we feel fear like that in our lives. 
And that's a good thing. Fear like that causes a host of long-term issues in our lives, our individual lives, and our community life. It affects our mental health, our emotional well-being, our physical health, and even our spiritual health and growth. Our whole country, arguably the entire Western world and much of the rest of the world, was affected dramatically that day. It was a trauma that our entire community suffered together. And I'm not using that word trauma lightly here. According to the experts, what happened that day meets the clinical and theological definitions of trauma. According to Serene Jones, in an excellent book called Trauma and Grace that I recommend to everyone, a traumatic event is one in which a person or persons perceives themselves or others as threatened by an external force that seeks to annihilate them and against which they are unable to resist and which overwhelms their capacity to cope. Trauma can happen to a person, an individual, and it can happen to a whole community. An individual can be traumatized and suffer post-trauma symptoms, or a whole community can be traumatized. And I would argue that much, if not all, of the division and nastiness we see in our country right now can be attributed to being a post-traumatic symptom because we have not dealt with the emotional ramifications of 9-11, let alone COVID. I'm not talking about our logistical responses to those things. I'm not here from the pulpit as a guest preacher to argue about what our country should or shouldn't have done technically in those situations. I'm talking about emotionally and psychologically. We have not dealt with those. We addressed the situations for better or for worse, but we did not address the trauma. Sometimes trauma is something that literally threatens our physical well-being or even our life. Maybe like the physical abuse I suffered in my first marriage or how 9-11 or COVID-19 traumatized our entire community. That is physical threat. But sometimes it's something that threatens our psychological or emotional or spiritual self like being a victim of racism or growing up with negligent or emotionally abusive parents in the house. For children, things like moving homes or changing schools can cause trauma. Sometimes it's a single event. Sometimes it's a series of events that just finally become too much for us to cope with. And this is not something we can judge for another person. Something that might traumatize me might just be stressful for you, and vice versa. It's not our place to judge whether someone should or shouldn't have been traumatized by something. There is no shame in trauma. Hear me again. There is no shame in trauma. There is no weakness in admitting that you are affected by it. It is a natural human reaction to overwhelming circumstances. Speaking from a biological, medical, brain chemistry standpoint, trauma is when we chemically get stuck in the fight or flight mode of fear, 
right? That mode where if a bear runs in the door, we're either going to put up our dukes and fight the bear, or we're going to run and get the heck out of here. That's fight or flight. And our body, our brain can get chemically stuck there in a situation of trauma. It has been medically proven as well that these chemical changes caused by trauma can even be passed down to our children and our grandchildren. Generational trauma is a real scientifically proven thing. So if we don't address it now, it's going to live on in our families and in our communities and even in our churches, even when we're gone. So I will say it once more for good measure. There is no shame or weakness in trauma. There is no shame or weakness in admitting that there have been big, overwhelming things that happened in our life and that we were overwhelmingly scared. There's not even any shame in admitting we might not have handled it well in the aftermath. And there is certainly no shame in seeking out the spiritual, emotional, physical, and mental support that we need to heal from it as individuals and as a community. In fact, meeting healing head-on takes greater courage than many people are willing to show. At the beginning of 2 Timothy, this passage that I just read, Paul says he remembers Timothy's tears. You can feel the sorrow in this separation between these two friends. It's believed that he's referring to when the two were last separated. A frightening time, I'm sure, because journeys those days were uncertain and dangerous, and the two friends weren't sure that they would ever see each other again when they parted. And by the time of this letter, Paul is sitting in prison awaiting his own execution. There is no shortage of things to be afraid of, as Paul encourages Timothy. And I would be very surprised if this was not a traumatic time for Paul, because everyone I've met who was incarcerated, and that is a lot of people in my line of work, suffered some amount of trauma as a result of incarceration. Paul is in a terrible place, and he's remembering a dramatic separation from his friends that he will never see again. So I will bet, as a preacher, that he was preaching to himself as much as he was preaching to Timothy when he said... God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. He's not shaming the fear. He's not saying the fear is invalid. He's not even saying he's not scared for his life. Paul never says, I'm not afraid. He says, that's not part of my being, though. He's just saying that fear is not a part of our core identity, the identity we've been given in Christ, so we cannot allow ourselves to get stuck in it. The answer to fear is not blocking out the fear. It's not failing to acknowledge it. It's not building up emotional and sometimes physical walls to protect ourselves and shut other people out. The answer is to live into the spirit that God gives us. I am a language nerd, if we haven't picked up on that yet in the few times that I've been here. I think maybe that's come up a time or two, though. I really love Greek 
and Hebrew, especially because of the insight they give us into the author's original intent, especially in a letter like this. If we're going to take the Bible seriously, we have to take our translations seriously. And so I kind of hate the choice of the word power here in most of the English translations, because the Greek word dunamis isn't really power in the way that we tend to use it today. Most Americans hear the word power and think about wealth or politics or even guns and bombs and military power, or maybe even the electricity, right? My son texted me frantically the other day and said the power was out in his apartment. That's not what they're meaning here in this passage. That can't be further from what Paul is talking about. Dunamis means capability or potential as much as might or strength. And so it's more like empowerment as we would use it today. It even has a bit of a miraculous edge to it sometimes. There's a God-given, God-breathed uh, edge to it. It's more of an internal fortitude and a strength of character that come from God than a physical power. There are several words in Greek for love, but this one used here is the word agape, which is not a love for a specific person. It's not the kind of love we have for a husband or a wife or even a child or a sibling. It is an overarching, widespread, unifying love for all people, a compassion, a kindness, an understanding that we're all in this together. It's a love that unifies people across their differences. And finally, the spirit that God gives us, Paul says, is one of self-control, not sin control. Anyone who's ever tried to be a good Christian by willfully avoiding sin knows what an exhausting and unproductive endeavor that is. Not sin control, self-control. Get yourself in order is what the Spirit says to us. Deal with your baggage so you can grow and move on. I'm doing my doctoral work on the theology of trauma and how the scriptural narrative can help us heal from trauma, which is why I'm so excited about this passage and this exploration this week and why I think it's so important for us as the faithful to explore. And in my work, which relies heavily on Serene Jones, who I quoted earlier, I found that there are three major steps to healing trauma. The first is to find or create safe space in which the traumatized can tell their story. The second, tell the story. And the third, and this is very important, the community then has to move forward and re-narrate the story together. This third step is where we break the cycles of trauma. We refuse to respond to the traumatic situation by causing more trauma to the people and peoples around us, and rather we create a new story together. And while Paul and Timothy didn't have the psychological language of trauma like we do today, look at what happens when we overlay this passage and that process for healing. 
love, a spirit of love, of compassion, of understanding, of valuing everyone around us, that creates the safe space that those who need healing need to start the process. Power, empowerment. It takes great strength of character and God-breathed ability and calling to stand up and tell your story. And self-control. Take some serious self-reflection and discipline to be able to hear someone else's story, believe their pain without dismissing it, admit our part in that pain if we took a part in it, and then to do the hard work of telling a new story together. And look at where Paul goes right after verse 7. He says, share the story. Tell this story. Tell about the good news that counters the spirit of fear. The whole last section of that passage I read is about telling the good news, re-narrating the story together to find healing and hope in the world. So while he didn't have the same sort of language for this stuff that we tend to use today, Paul was speaking some powerful truth to Timothy here, as well as to us. What are we as the church called to do in times of fear, times of terrorist attack or war or pandemic, times when someone in our community has suffered a trauma of some sort, times of loss or sudden frightening change, or even times when we just want to make sure we're working toward being a safe space for all in the community to come and heal? We are not called to insulate ourselves from the outside world to protect ourselves. And I know this is a hard one, right? It's a fine line between showing support for our fellow hurting countrymen and women and falling into insular and idolatrous nationalism. It's a fine line between setting healthy boundaries with the person who abused us and never allowing anyone else in again and becoming an emotional hermit. We are called to live into the love and empowerment that God offers us and to seek faithful, healthy community with all those around us. We are called to react with compassion and to seek to learn more about the people around us rather than to shut them out. We are not called to scream our fear and story at the rest of the world without listening to the people around us, demanding that we are right or that we are the most wronged of all those who have been hurt. We are called to share our story and listen to the stories of those around us, admitting when we played a part in their trauma and helping to break the cycles of trauma that the world gets stuck in. And then we are called to tell a different story moving forward. I think it's good and healthy that every September we all reflect on where we were on that morning. It's part of our healing. I think it's good and healthy that over the past two and a half years, we've all spent time talking to people about where we were and how life changed in March of 2020. I was just starting a doctoral program that wound up looking very different than I had expected it to. What's not good and healthy, though, is when we get stuck on telling that story over and over and over and never moving forward, never doing the work of creating safe space for everyone to tell their stories of fear and trauma and the hard work of re-narrating 
the story of the world so that those aren't things we have to worry about anymore. What's not healthy is when we leave it open-ended and we only tell the story through the days or weeks immediately following September 11th. We have to follow up that story with, and here's the good news that the gospel has to say in times of fear. This broken and often frightening world is not the end of the story. Military action or lifting mask mandates is not the end of the story. It's a part of the story sometimes. There's a lot of self-reflection and healing that has to come after telling those parts of the story. The kingdom of God that comes to redeem all the hurt and the pain and the suffering that we've seen, that comes to renew and recreate the world so that none of this will happen again, that is where the story ends. As Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amen.